you are listening to the Baby Sleep Answers Podcast, the podcast that answers all your baby sleep questions, but it's also just your friend in your ear here to let you know it's normal to struggle, it's normal to have anxiety, and it's normal to want to sleep more. I am so excited for today's guest, Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She is a board-certified psychiatrist, New York Times contributor, and she works specializing in women's mental health, which is awesome for all of us. She's also someone I've grown kind of a friendship with just over Instagram, and I've loved seeing her grow. And she has a new book coming out soon, which she'll tell us about. So let's get started. Okay. Hi, I am now with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, and how are you doing? I am doing well. It's so great to be back chatting with you, Andrea. I know. We talked back with, I think it was your podcast or your Gemma. I'm not sure yes, when was the last yes, time. Yes, for Gemma, I think um, we did a little video conversation. And so that was like probably a year ago. Oh my gosh. Maybe even more at this point. Time so. is just flying by. We're just at home since the pandemic and then just <laughs> time just flies around us. Um, okay, so I introduced you a little bit, just kind of like your quick summary. But can you tell us, if someone asks you, who are you? What comes to mind first? Yes. So I am Dr. Pooja Lakshman. I am a board-certified psychiatrist. I specialize in women's mental health and perinatal psychiatry. So in my clinical practice, I take care of only women and people who identify as women. And the majority of my patients are moms. Um, So I work with patients who are struggling with things like postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Um, So obviously people who are listening here right now are sort of my core (laughs) clinical demographic. Um, I'm also the founder and CEO of Gemma, which is a women's mental health community focused on equity and impact. And then I um, wrote a book, uh, my first book. It's called Real Self-Care, a transformative program for redefining wellness, crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths not included. <laughs> and um, and I know we can talk a little bit more about the book yes. um, towards the end of our conversation. But, yeah, um, that would yeah, be so great. Yeah, so I wear a lot of different hats, and um, I, I love talking about sleep in the postpartum because I just feel like it hits on so many critical points related to maternal mental health Mm -hmm. and so every conversation we have Andrea I feel like um it's just so important um so perfect and you're a mom right oh yeah I forgot (laughs) um I'm a mom my son is now almost eight months old wow Um, so I had him last year after going through IVF um and I'm um now 39 gosh, almost 39 and a half. So I I came to motherhood a little bit later in life. And I've written before I write for the New York times. I've written about like my own ambivalence about motherhood and, and sort of, um, I've also been really open, even though I am a perinatal psychiatrist, I myself have suffered from depression and anxiety and, and made the decision to go back on Zoloft during my pregnancy because I was high risk. So it's been an interesting experience. Um, you know, because I had all of like the professional expertise I've been doing perinatal psychiatry for almost a decade. But of course, once you actually live it, you understand it uh, in a different way. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just in that phase of like trying to juggle all the things of 
my son's in daycare, so he's, you know, everyone's perpetually sick. Yeah, I mean, um, we're we just, yeah. To, we had to, you know, reschedule this podcast like three times. Because, <laughs> so. My kids were sick or yours were sick. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, that you went through it, even though that's your profession. Uh, because I run into that myself. We don't sleep much. And my, my whole thing is sleep. So it's good to know that, you know, that's a thing. And you don't have to feel like a fraud when you're not good at what you help others do. And not that you're not good at it. Um, but let's move on because I just made it awkward. <laughs> no, okay. Exactly. Like uh, we teach, we really, we teach what we need to know, you know, and I think that it's actually really powerful, especially in all these different spaces where moms are just constantly inundated with like rules and like mm-hmm. made to feel guilty. And I think like knowing that the quote unquote experts that you're listening to have had their own human experiences. I I think that's really powerful. So that's true. I love that. And since you do focus on all that, I do want to focus our conversation on postpartum depression and anxiety, postpartum anxiety in the early stages of motherhood. Um, In my work, when I see my, my clients and, you know, my friends and family, uh, when we help them get more sleep, a lot of the time this kind of helps them get better. But I know that's not always the case. You know, that was my case. I w- had horrible postpartum anxiety and it didn't go away until I was sleeping. But I don't ever want to say, you know, if you have postpartum anxiety, just sleep train your child and that's going to cure it. So I do want to deep dive. Um, what is something that or is there someone who is more prone to postpartum anxiety or depression than others? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple crucial risk factors. So, and I'll just say kind of to start out that question, a risk factor means statistically there's a higher chance that you will um, experience a medical condition. It doesn't mean you definitely will, Mm -hmm. but it means on the population level when we're looking at all the numbers and the data, you are more likely. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, One of the biggest risk factors for experiencing postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety is a previous lifetime history of having any type of mental health condition. So, and that, that isn't just specific to the perinatal period. So it could have been at any other time in your life where you had, um, you know, an anxiety disorder, or you suffered from depression, Mm -hmm. um, or bipolar disorder. Um, And, uh, and then of course, if you are somebody who has had a previous postpartum depression episode, or a previous postpartum anxiety episode, um, with your first or your second baby, um, that makes it more likely that you will experience that condition again, um, in your next postpartum period. So just to give you a sense of the numbers, um, in the general population, so for people that have never had any type of mental health condition, um, anywhere from 10 to 20% of women will experience some type of mood or anxiety issue mm. during the first year after having a baby um, or during pregnancy itself. Um, we should also just keep in mind that you can start to experience the, these symptoms in pregnancy. It's not just postpartum. If you have previously been on antidepressant medication, and if you go off of your medication during pregnancy, your risk for having a relapse or having a depressive episode or anxiety episode goes up to like 70%. Oh, wow. So it's so probably like the one that I really want your listeners to just like keep in mind as a takeaway is that if you've ever had 
a mental health issue before, that puts you in a high risk um, group of folks. And you should absolutely make sure that your OB or your midwife or whoever your, um, you know, obstetric provider is that they know about this. And that is a sign that actually you should be making a sleep protection plan Hmm. from the get go. Okay. Yeah. That was going to be my second question. If you know you're, you know, likely to be high risk, or even if you're not in the high risk, you know, area, but you're worried about it happening, what's something that you can do before baby even gets there? Yeah. And I will say the other risk factors. So, um, Definitely, we know that black moms have higher rates of postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, um, folks who don't have social support. Yeah. So if you're a single mom, right, um, if you have any history of trauma or interpersonal conflict in your relationships, um, anybody who's kind of going through big transitions during pregnancy puts you at risk. And then the other big group that I I forgot to mention is if you've had previous losses. Mm. So if you've suffered miscarriage, multiple miscarriage, if you're going through infertility treatments, that also puts you at higher risk. Oh, wow. Um, So, but the good news, the good news. (laughs) Yeah, what can we do about it? (laughs) Debbie Downer, right, is like there actually are lots of evidence-based things that you can do to decrease your risk. So the first being if you're somebody who's previously benefited from taking medication, um, you can stay on your medication. And like I talked about, I took Zoloft during my pregnancy because I knew that I was high risk. And um, the vast majority of antidepressant medications and anxiety medications and even mood stabilizers, the data supports the fact that these are actually really low risk medications to be on. And in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, the risk of going off of the medication is more detrimental to the pregnancy and to mom's mental health and to baby's development than the risk of exposing baby to these medications during Uh breastfeeding or during pregnancy. So medication is number one, if that's previously been helpful for you. Number two is getting into either a support group or therapy or, you know, any type of um, mental health support talk therapy is the next kind of evidence-based intervention. Third is, is sleep actually. And I yeah. like to call it sleep protection. I like that. Um, and, and the thing with sleep that I always say is that um, sleep for the postpartum period is really, you know, it's a luxury because it does really depend on how much family support you have, um, for sure. whether you have the resources, right, to pay for like a night nurse or a postpartum doula. Um, But the reality is that if you understand you're somebody who is high risk, you can start having this conversation about sleep. Um, Like really you should be having it throughout your whole pregnancy so that you can talk to your partner, talk to the rest of your family and be like, okay, who's going to come to help? What decisions can I make about feeding my baby so that it's possible for me to potentially get a four to six hour chunk of sleep? It might not be every night, right? But even if you can do that a couple times a week, it's going to make a huge difference in terms of your mental health. Um, and then lastly, the other evidence-based strategy is um, social support, which again, like feeds into the sleep bit as well. So um, 
you know, we you talk about this all the time. We all know this. Like, we're not meant to raise babies in isolation, yeah. right? Like, we need a village. And so for some folks, that means if you're lucky enough to have grandparents who are still living and who can be there to help, or if you have other family members who can be there to, and when I say help, I mean actually help, not <laughs> just be <laughs> there baby. to visit and, like, you know, coo over the baby, but to, like, you know, wash bottles and like prep food and do laundry, like actually providing operational help. Or if you're able to, um, you know, if you're able to spend the money and have the extra money that you can hire help. Um, So those are sort of like the four different prongs of prevention. Perfect. Um, and now, you know, sometimes you know you are kind of you, nothing is good and you can't stop crying and you know there's something wrong. But what are some signs of PPD or PPA that people should look for in themselves or a partner or a friend uh, that are less obvious? Because, you know, we, we're, we're superhero in our own minds and we need to keep going and we should be able to do everything and we don't realize, hey, this isn't normal. Maybe that question's a little too broad. No, that's a great question. I think there's like sort of like the classic things, like if you're starting to have thoughts of, um, you know, extreme hopelessness or even passive, what we call passive suicidal thoughts. So that would be something like going to bed at night and sort of hoping that you don't wake up or having thoughts like, you know, my family would be better off without me. Um, Mm -hmm. We call that passive suicidal ideation because usually people who experience those types of thoughts will say, well, I would never actually actively do anything to hurt myself. But um, if something were to happen, you know, I would feel a sense of relief. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, kind of the classic red flag is if you're having trouble functioning. Um, And I think that's tough because especially in those first few weeks and even first few months of postpartum, like it is hard, right? Because again, you're sleep deprived. Um, so everything can feel sort of tough. So I would say like maybe the less known pearls or the way that I think about this with patients in my practice is that when you have PPD or PPA, it robs you of the ability to have even any type of positive moment with your baby. So somebody that does not have PPD or PPA, they, yes, will probably still feel like everything's hard and like they're, you know, they'll, they'll be going through it, but they'll still at least occasionally have moments where, you know, they're holding their baby or they're watching their baby and they really kind of feel like this genuine sense of connection or joy or fulfillment. Whereas somebody who has PPD or PPA doesn't have any of that like zero Hmm. and I'm not saying that you know I'm not trying to like romanticize the postpartum period because I certainly my experience was not that it was all like (laughs) feelings of you know (laughs) fulfillment or joy like there was just definitely a lot of very down moments but there should at least still be the possibility of some of those sporadic positive moments if that number is at zero then that's when we start to worry. And then the other piece that I think is maybe a little bit lesser known that probably would apply to folks who are listening to this podcast is that when you start to notice that you're becoming obsessive Mm -hmm. to the point of um, 
it impacting your functioning or impacting your relationships. And I think that's where sleep, like baby sleep and just how hard getting a baby to sleep can be and like how much, like, are you somebody who is spending hours and hours like reading all of the rules about like the schedule of like what you're supposed to do? And do you find yourself like getting really, really anxious to the point of not being able to think about anything else when the schedule gets thrown off or when your baby doesn't fit into the schedule? Like how rigid and obsessive are you becoming with that? And is the, um, the whole sort of topic of your baby's sleep, does it feel like very sticky? Like, is it like the only thing that you could think about to the point where there's nothing else? That sounds a little bit more consistent with something clinical. Okay. No, that's great does stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, because with, with my first one, I didn't know something was wrong. I thought it was just, you know, I'm a mean yeah. mom. I should, you know, this isn't going to be enjoyable, obviously, because I'm not sleeping. I'm not being myself. But then when I had my third baby, I was like, wow, you can enjoy babies. I just didn't know you could enjoy a baby. And I was like, people that say that like newborn, they're lying because there's nothing enjoyable about newborn. And I didn't realize this is just because I had such horrible postpartum anxiety with my first. Um, so I, I hope if you do have any more, I hope you do get to enjoy those periods of times in the future because it is just so different. Um, and you don't know any different. So you just think, oh, this is what it is. So this, this is just so helpful. I'm glad you're sharing all of this. Um, yeah. And I will say that a good number of my patients, you know, will come in with their second, right? Because like you said, you don't sort of, um, you might not recognize it with the first because you don't have anything to compare it to. Um, and also, um, I think postpartum depression gets a good amount of attention, mm-hmm. but postpartum anxiety tends to not get as much attention. And also postpartum anxiety can be like really functional, yeah. right? Like you're still just getting everything done. Like you're still making it all happen. Like it's, you know, everything's rolling. It's just that um, you're really suffering on the inside and yeah. um, it can be harder for other people to spot it sometimes. Yeah. The way I like to think of it is just you're in this hallway and there's so many doors and you know there's one door that's right, but you don't know which one it is, but it's up to you to find that door. Um, and that's just because I was in that situation once I was lost in the hospital kind of setting and I was like, oh my gosh, this is literally what it felt like to be in postpartum anxiety. I have to make the right decision, but if I make the right wrong one, I'm going to end up in the wrong room and you're just walking in that hallway cause you got to keep going. Um, so anyway, that's just my metaphor for it. I love that metaphor. And the thing that I would add to that is that when you're in that anxiety state, it does really feel like there's only one door and the reality is when you're able to zoom out and not be anxious, you recognize that there probably are like two or three doors. Yes. You know, right. But you don't see that when you're in the throes of anxiety, you really feel like, Oh my God, there's only one door. And like, I'm the only one that can find it. And, um, and that's what it is. Right. Exactly. Actually, it's just such a terrifying feeling. It's so burdensome. It puts so much pressure on you. Um, it just sucks to be in that place. 
Yeah, actually, in this specific scenario, I was I had run in to go to the bathroom before my kid my kid was having an isotopic an eye surgery, and oh. I didn't look where I was going. I just went in. I was in this huge hallway, and I was looking for a bathroom, and I couldn't find it. And I was for five minutes. I was just roaming around this empty hallway with no noise, and I just was freaking out. And it wasn't until I calmed down, <laughs> I used my phone, and Joe, my husband, was like, "Why didn't you go down the elevator? We're waiting for you." <laughs> Um, but it's, it's literally like that, you know, you just have to go back, slow down, ask for help and then you can come out of it. But it's so difficult and you don't know, you just think that hallway is where you're supposed to be. Um, right, right. So and there's like this urgency to it. Yes, right? yes, you got to like go pee. <laughs> very, very happen, needs to happen right now and needs to be fixed right now. Exactly. Um, and so a couple more things and then I'll let you go. Um, what is something we can do? when we see someone else showing signs of postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression? Because it's not always easy to be like, hey, you need to get help. Um, do you have any kind of suggestions for that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think if we stick with this hallway metaphor, it's actually a great example because, you know, especially if you've been there, you know that when you're on the hallway and somebody tries to tell you like, hey, hey, like just check out this elevator, like you're just like, no, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, I gotta go pee. Right? Like when you're in the throes of it, you're just swatting everybody away. So I think as a friend or a family member that sees a loved one going through this, I think like one, you have to be really gentle and really patient Mm -hmm. and, and try to be sort of an open door. And instead of coming in with a hammer and saying like, hey, I, I think you need to go to therapy or like, hey, I think you need to call your OB. Um, instead thinking of it, like, can I be sort of like a conversation partner for my friend? Can I be a little bit more curious and like ask them questions that might get them talking in a way that would help them see like, oh, maybe it is possible to ask somebody else for help. So like, even just sort of like, you know, asking like, oh, like, you know, like how have things been going? Like, you know, and maybe if you ask how are things going, they rattle off a whole list of like different sort of items in terms of like baby sleep or like what's going on with that. And then you can kind of say like, oh, but like, how have you been feeling? Right. You know, like what what's going on with you? And, and then they might respond and say, yeah, like, you know, I'm really stressed or, you know, and then you could say like, oh, you know, like, I know that this is like such a really hard time, um, you know, like leading them into sort of being curious about themselves and framing things as a question. Oh, like, have you, have you talked to your OB about mm-hmm. that? Um, if you have any personal experience with any of these types of conditions, sharing your personal experience can also be really powerful because it opens up a door for that person to know, like, oh, other people have struggled too. Yeah. And other people have gotten help and the help actually has worked. Yeah. No, yeah, because, you know, when you... I mean, I never felt shame for it, but I know people do feel ashamed and they feel like they shouldn't ask for help because people are going to look at them weirdly. Um, but I just want everyone to know there is absolutely no shame. And, you know, when something's wrong with you, there's just something wrong with you. You just did, you know, the miracle of life. Um, so that's just great, great advice. Yeah. And, and the other thing I would say to that, too, is I think for this particular stage, like a lot of times it can be confusing because you know Mm -hmm. oftentimes like my patients will be like well like I don't need medication I don't need therapy I just need sleep (laughs) yeah like right I just need sleep 
And that is 100% true. But the problem is that when your brain is an anxious brain, like when you have PPA, you actually can't think clearly enough to have the right conversations with your partner or to problem solve in a like logical manner so that you actually can get sleep, right? So Mm -hmm. what therapy can do or what medication can do is it regulates your brain essentially so that the anxiety is not so high so that you can actually begin to like have productive conversations with your partner as opposed to just like bursting out crying every time something happens, right? Um, so like, I completely agree that like sleep is like what we're trying to get to, but sometimes your brain needs help being able to get set up a system so that sleep is possible. Yeah. I mean, especially also now, I mean, when I, six, even just six years ago when I was looking for more sleep, there wasn't that much information and it was hard to kind of go through because I was looking at blog posts and stuff, but no one was on Instagram, like telling you that you're doing the wrong thing, no matter what you do. And now that that's what you see, you know, regardless of where you go look, it's like, well, if you don't hold your baby, then they're going to be not attached. Or if you don't sleep, train your newborn. (laughs) And so there's just so much to funnel through now. It's, I think that adds a lot to the anxiety. So definitely reaching out for someone who can help you look in the right place, um, to help you do that. Awesome. Okay. Um, your new focus right now is on specific self-care and what that truly means and you again have a book coming out soon and I'm excited to get my hands on it soon um can you tell us a little bit about it yeah absolutely so the book is called real self-care and the sub subtitle is crystals cleanses and bubble baths not included um which mm-hmm. I was very my agent thought of that sub subtitle um so basically I, I am proposing a completely redefined version of self-care because right now what we see on social media is a totally commodified version of self-care that is like, okay, buy this, you know, you know, whatever scented candle, bullet journal, um, you know, new, new juice cleanse, like all mm-hmm. these wellness products, everything you can band-aids. buy. Right. Right. Yeah. They're, they're band-aids. And what I see in my practice is like moms who come in and they're like, Dr. Lakshman, I'm totally burnt out. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating well. And I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my Mm. phone and I know I should be using it, but I never do. And um, I call that the tyranny of faux self-care, which is like these wellness solutions that that are tools it's not that meditation is wrong or bad it's just that that's a tool and in order to actually do real self-care you have to enact principles so my hypothesis and this is based off of my clinical practice is that real self-care is about your decision making it's about learning how to make decisions that are actually aligned with your internal values And everybody has different values, right? So you can't just buy this off the shelf. You can't pick up someone else's version (laughs) of self-care. Which would be nice, yeah. And even if we talk about something like, you know, it's not like I'm um, railing on other modalities. It's, you know, one person's yoga class could be like really performative because they're going to yoga and they're like focused on whether they have the right like Lululemon leggings and they're like, obsessing over their headstand and taking selfies like I would call that faux self-care 
Mm -hmm. versus another person's yoga class could be real self-care because they've done the internal work of setting boundaries with their partner to make time to go to yoga once a week and developing compassion and how they talk to themselves and understanding why yoga is really aligned with their values. Like that's a very different experience of yoga than the first example. So it's less about the thing that you're doing and more about the way that you're getting to, to the thing, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. No. And I love that. I just, I have such a thing with, you know, everyone trying to sell you something always under the guise of, you know, this is what you need. So totally, totally. And anybody that says like that their solution is the only solution should, you know, raise the spidey senses and mm-hmm. the spidey hairs on the back of your neck. Because like the reality is like self-care is, different for everybody right there's not one modality and so that's why with real self-care I'm saying we have to take it back internally and you have to know yourself and decide for yourself what are the activities what are the things that are going to make you feel whole and make you feel like yourself and the other thing that I would say here is that one of the things I've seen my practice and I've experienced this myself is that the things that you used to have time for when you were in your 20s you usually don't have time for once you get to your 30s and once you become a mom, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we know that like moms in America have about 30 minutes of discretionary time. <laughs> if even. If even, yeah. So like, when you were younger, like you could say like, oh, I'm going to go to yoga three times a week and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then once you become a parent, like that's just, like, that's laughable. Right? Yeah. So again, like instead of focusing on these tools that are sort of commodified, Real self-care is about how you make your decisions around how you spend your time. And for me, I found that to be actually really freeing because that means that you can access it and it's actually sustainable. And um, it's something that you can give yourself. It's not something that you, uh, and it's not something you have to feel guilty about because everybody else on Instagram is like, you know, sort of hawking something. I love that. Awesome. I cannot wait to read the book and I'm so glad you're in this journey and helping so many through it. I I think I just love it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate it. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you and to be able to get on my soapbox about sleep and self-care. So (laughs) I I love it. I mean, I, (laughs) I mean, I would tell all pregnant women to get, you know, my newborn course and to learn about newborn sleep. Um, but I, there's just so many components to it too. I, I don't, I don't think my newborn course is the only thing you can do, but it's just, you know, something you can do to learn about it. I had no idea about sleep. I just, you know, everyone tells you you're not going to sleep, but you're like, stop telling me how horrible motherhood is, but no one tells you specific things to do. Um, okay. Thank you so, so much for making the time. Uh, I'm so glad our kids are better and not sick and we're finally able to meet and maybe again, we'll meet after I read your book and we can talk more about it, but thank you so much for making the time. Appreciate it. I would love that. I would love that. And, um, and people can find me. I'm on Instagram at Pooja Lakshman. My website is PoojaLakshman.com. The book is called Real Self Care and you can get it wherever you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, all the places. And, um, and Gemma, G-E-M-M-A, GemmaWomen.com is my women's mental health community. Awesome. Thanks, Great. Andrea. Thank you. Be sure to check her out and also be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review. Like and comment on all my Instagrams Um, and check out babysleepanswers.com slash podcast for more helpful links like a free wake window chart or sign up for our month to month age 
according to your baby's age tips monthly in your email. Alrighty, 